Amen. Well, uh, here we are. I'm thankful that we've gathered today. Um, again, our last chance to gather together of the year. Uh, and uh, and we're, we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, uh, if you want to turn there. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And we've been walking through Luke's Gospel uh, for the four weeks of Advent, talking about abundant joy as we, as we walk through that narrative about the birth of Jesus. But we're continuing through the Gospel of Luke now, between now and Easter. Um, and we're going to continue walking through the Gospel of Luke, and we're calling our time in Luke, we're calling this series The, the Story Fulfilled. Uh, we didn't have a campfire story this morning between the holiday and the crazy weather and all that. Nobody was here to, to, to share their campfire story. But over the past few months, as we've been walking through our campfire stories, we've, we've walked through the big story of the Old Testament. And now, as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're seeing that in, in, in the Gospel of Jesus, in the person of Jesus Christ, all the hopes and dreams and promises that we walk through in the Old Testament story, they all come to fulfillment in the life and in the person of Jesus Christ. And then after, after uh, Easter, we're going we're gonna to go to the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, and that's going to be uh, the book of Acts. And we'll walk through as the story continues in the early church and even today. So I'm excited about, uh, after all, all the, the past few months walking through the Old Testament, I'm thankful that we're going to walk through uh, together uh, a big chunk of the New Testament together in the months ahead. And so, dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. Your word is alive. Uh, your word is, is reliable. Your word is transforming. Holy Spirit, whatever you want to say to our hearts, we don't want to miss that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so as, as, uh, as we open to Luke chapter 3, um, what's happened is the, the, the last time we saw Jesus was at the end of Luke chapter 2, and here he was, a 12-year-old child, uh, amazing everybody in the temple. And now we fast forward about 18 years, but before we dive into the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist. And remember in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, the, uh, the, 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 the birth narratives, the birth stories about uh, John the Baptist and Jesus uh, paralleled each other. And now we're going to have this introduction to John the Baptist's ministry before we, uh, before we uh, see the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus, and his role was to prepare the way for Jesus. And he's a fulfillment of the Old Testament promise that, that God would send uh, someone in the spirit of Elijah, that God would send this prophet to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that's the, the role that John the Baptist plays. And I believe that, that what we need today are, are prophets, gospel-centered, Christ-centered prophets like John the Baptist. Now, there's some confusion about this word prophet. A uh, prophet doesn't necessarily mean somebody who predicts the future. A prophet, according to the New Testament understanding of the word, a prophet is one who proclaims God's word authoritatively. And so uh, Moses had prayed. He said, I wish that all of God's people were prophets. He says, I wish that every person uh, that belongs to the people of God was a prophet that spoke God's word with authority. And, and, and Moses' prayer was answered. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God falls upon the early church, and, and, uh, and, and Peter says, this is to fulfill what Joel the prophet said, uh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Um, as a member of the body of Christ, 
as, 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 as someone, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have uh, the Spirit of God indwelling you. And, and that means you have a prophetic ministry. You have a ministry to speak God's Word with authority. You have this ministry and this opportunity to proclaim the truth of God's Word as revealed in Scripture. You have an opportunity and a, and a, and a mandate uh, to, to share a Christ-centered, gospel-centered message um, that God's kingdom rule has come near and, and you get to invite, and I get to invite people into that. And what we need uh, today in the, in the body of Christ is people like John the Baptist who, who embrace that call and say, you know what, I'm, just, I'm not just going to share a message that's popular. I'm going to share a message that's, that's true. Um, and so today, as we, think, as, as we, as we look at, at Luke chapter 3, Luke, as we're going to dive in here in a minute, he goes to great pains to kind of paint the picture of the political and the religious situation that, um, that John the Baptist and then Jesus ministered in. And as we think about our religious and political situation today, um, uh, most of us uh, are, are familiar, or, or, or even if we're not familiar with the term, we, we were probably raised up in and we identify with a stream of the Christian faith or a branch of the Christian faith called evangelical or evangelicalism. And when we hear that word evangelical, um, probably different ideas come to mind. But evangelicalism, uh, or to be evangelical, is a label given to a certain stripe of Christian um, that most of us, again, would identify with. It comes from the root word evangel, which means gospel, okay? So to be an evangelical, according to the meaning of the word, is to be someone who whose life is centered on the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, okay? Um, evangelical Christians have typically emphasized the centrality of the gospel, have emphasized the authority of Scripture. Evangelical Christians have emphasized the need to be born again and this need to spread the, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus. Um, again, this is a branch of the Christian faith that most of us are familiar with and would identify with. But in recent years, that word evangelical has kind of gotten hijacked. Um, it's kind of gotten hijacked and become associated more with a certain expression of politics um, than with faith. And some of the deep association of evangelicalism with politics has led to a departure from our core and basic tenets. Um, Colin Hansen is... Uh, editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. If you're not familiar with the work of the Gospel Coalition, uh, this is a group that, that does incredible work promoting Christ-centered ministry and a Christ-centered message. And Colin Hansen writes, um, for those of us who care deeply that our neighbors come to know the love of Jesus Christ, he says, this is a tragic moment. Um, he says... We talk about the evangel, the good news, that makes us evangelicals, but our neighbors hear a certain kind of political agenda, or they hear a kind of anger or frustration. And so when we as insiders use this word evangelical, 
We have certain associations with it, and they're positive associations. But when our neighbor, who we're trying to reach with the gospel message, when our neighbor hears that word evangelical, often what our neighbor hears or understands um, is they hear, an, they, they hear a political agenda. Or they think about angry Christians. Often they think about angry white male Christians. Um, a recent survey of self-described evangelicals by LifeWay Research. Now, LifeWay Research is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, okay? And LifeWay did a survey of people who call themselves, and I'm driving somewhere with this, I think, so bear with me. Um, LifeWay did a survey of people who say, I'm evangelical, who call themselves evangelical. And less than half of the people who call themselves evangelical accept the authority of Scripture. Less than half of people who take that label evangelical accept the authority of Scripture. Less than half believe that trust in Jesus Christ is the key to eternal salvation. And less than half shared a commitment to spread the gospel message to non-Christians. And so what we've got going on is there's this label that's been politicized and it's become a blanket term to mean something that it wasn't originally intended to mean. And so when we hear the phrase, we hear one thing. When our neighbors hear the phrase, they hear something else. And this is a moment in our nation when political and religious forces have conspired together to kind of create a Frankenstein's monster um, that looks less and less like the New Testament gospel faith. And what we need in this moment in history What we need today, 2017, the 12 hours left of it, and 2018, what we need are gospel-centered, Christ-centered prophets to remind a generation, to rise up and remind a generation what following Jesus Christ is really about. That's what we need. And I believe and I hope and I pray that those of us in this room, gathered in this room here on Blizzard 2017 Sunday, that we would be among those who say, we want to be used of God. We desire to be, uh, to be moved by the Spirit of God and used of God to remind a generation what following Christ is really about and what the good news is really about. The, 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 the truth is, wherever we are on the political spectrum, Jesus offends right-wing people and Jesus offends left-wing people. Je- the real Jesus and the real gospel is offensive to left-wingers and right-wingers, and if there's any other wingers, it's offensive to them too, because the real gospel and the real Jesus is scandalous. All right, and so that evangelical label, though, has become problematic and it's become criticized. Um, maybe some of us have heard the, of the, I've mentioned it several times, if you're on social media, maybe you've seen the hashtag MeToo movement. And hashtag MeToo is a movement um, that, uh, that has gained a lot of traction and it's a movement of, of women who've been abused by men in power. And the hashtag MeToo movement uh, has been really critical of those who take that evangelical label, um, who, um, who've justified, uh, even though they take the evangelical label, who've justified the objectification of women and the abuse of women. Beth Moore, who's uh, been an evangelical icon, Beth Moore uh, 
tweeted, this idea that God puts up with secret sins from his servants for the greater good is a total crock. She's a prophet. She's operating as a prophet, speaking truth um, that often we don't like to hear. She says, this idea that God puts up with secret sins from his servants for the greater good is a total crock. Now, now what's happening, Beth Moore is getting a lot of pushback and criticism because people are saying, hey, I thought she was one of us. What's she doing speaking against us? She's supposed to stay on the team. What's she doing criticizing us? I thought she was one of us. Um, ethnic minorities have also spoken of discomfort and disappointment with the evangelical label. Um, there's a, 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 an author and blogger that I follow. His name is Kyle J. Howard. Um, and he writes this. He's, he writes like uh, he's an African-American evangelical. Uh, he's an African-American Christian. He says, like many other evangelical minorities, the past few years has been a season of deep disappointment. He says, time after time, many of us have witnessed our living Christian heroes betray us with apathy and at times antagonism concerning issues that affect our communities. He says, many minorities are not seeing themselves as loosening ties. They see themselves as leaving an abusive relationship. An abusive relationship that has persisted for centuries in various forms. An abusive relationship that has taken advantage of the love, forbearance, and long-suffering of minorities at every turn. He says, white brethren, don't underestimate the impact of racial indifference. Your indifference, your silence, your antagonism, your support of racist ideas and politicians has left minorities traumatized, and many are fleeing white evangelicalism, not just loosening ties. What's my point in all this? Um, my point in all this is not so we can gather around and try to save this label of evangel- evangelicalism. My point isn't though for us to try to do CPR on a certain label. But what do we believers need during this historical moment that we're living in? When we've got a generation of young women who, who don't see the, the church as a place where trust can be found. We've got a gener- multiple generations of minority believers who, who, who are, are, are not looking to the traditional church uh, in our nation as, as a place to be heard and a place where advocacy and friendship can be found. Um, what do we believers need? Whatever our political stripe, whatever our ethnic uh, 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 whatever our, our, our race is, whatever our ethnicity is, what do believers need during this historical moment we're living in? How do we respond when much of the church in our country has been exposed as clinging to a form of godliness, yet denying its power? How do we respond? Our need in 2018, our need in this historical moment we're living in is the same as our need has always been. Our need is to return to God and cry out to God for true and deep spiritual awakening. Let's look at the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, now uh, we're jumping forward about 18 years from Jesus at 12 years old in the temple. And we're jumping to the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So this would put this about the year 29 A.D. And this is the, the, the ministry of John the Baptist. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, about 29 A.D. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Now we know Pontius Pilate. He's going to show back up in the story later. He's the spineless governor. 
who's respond, who, who hands Jesus over to be crucified, right? Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. This is not the Herod the Great that, that killed the babies in Bethlehem. This is his son, Herod Antipas. <coughs> his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. So if you didn't know that Abilene was in the Bible, there it is. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, there, how can Annas and Caiaphas both be high priests? Well, only Caiaphas is actually filling the, uh, the, the office of high priest, but his father-in-law, Annas, used to be the high priest. And have you ever known a situation where somebody, somebody wasn't in the driver's seat, but they're in the driver's seat? You know what I'm talking about? That's, that's Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, uh, wouldn't you love to be the high priest? And your father-in-law used to be the high priest. And Annas and Caiaphas are going to show up later in the story, and they're going to be the ones responsible for this this sham of a court that tries Jesus, and they're going to be the ones that hand Jesus over, demanding he be crucified. They choose Caesar over the kingdom of God. And there's something important to remember here, and that is when Caiaphas conspires with Caesar, Christ gets crucified. Try to remember that. When Caiaphas conspires with Caesar, Christ gets crucified. It doesn't matter who Caiaphas is. It doesn't matter who our Caesar is. But when Caiaphas, <coughs> the religious leader, and Caesar, the political leader, when they conspire together, Christ gets crucified. And we've seen that happen throughout church history over and over and over again. And so it's in this situation of injustice, the situation of political turmoil, that John the Baptist uh, responds to God's word. God's word comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Why does John the Baptist go to the Jordan? Remember, it was the Jordan River. After the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt, uh, they wander in the wilderness 40 years, and then they cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And, and, and that's that picture of crossing from the old into the new, from crossing into, from wandering into God's purpose. And so John the Baptist goes back to the Jordan River and he's baptizing people there as an image that God, he's saying God is doing something new. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world just like uh, when we cross, but even to a greater degree than when we cross the Jordan into the promised land. So he's baptizing with this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, as it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Um, so in this moment of deep suffering and justice and departure from God's word, what was needed was the voice of a prophet, a Christ-centered, gospel-centered prophet. So God raised one up in John the baptizer. And we don't always like what prophets say, do we? We don't usually like what prophets say. Look at what John says in verse 7. A crowd gathers, and John says, Ooh, what a lovely crowd that's gathered. I would like to make you all feel really, really comfortable, and I hope you come back next week to support my ministry. He says, You brood, thank you very much, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now, who would have been a little bit offended, tell the truth, if I, and I'm not trying to equate myself with John the Baptist, but if, if I had stood up here this morning, hey, uh, welcome, you bunch of snakes. Um, who, man, who, who warned you to run away, to slither away from hell? I think people would say, well, I'm going to find a different church if he's going to. I mean, a prophet does not say popular things. A prophet does not tickle ears. 
A prophet will offend with a, with a message of the, of the gospel. People, whether we're left-wing or right-wing or, or whatever we are, we're going to find offense in the message of a Christ-centered, gospel-centered prophet. We don't usually like what a true prophet says because it pierces us, but we would be wise to listen to a gospel-centered, Christ-centered prophet. We would be wise to listen and heed. And so John proclaims this baptism of repentance and this message of repentance, and he fulfills the prophecy of Malachi and the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 is quoted here, verse uh, 4 and 5 and 6, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John's ministry is to clear away all the clutter and all the debris to clear away anything that's hindering and blocking people's relationship with God and people's access to Jesus. This reminds me of when I used to uh, go in and out of Sudan and South Sudan and do orphan care work there. We would fly into these remote locations and, uh, and when we would be waiting for the airplane to fly in and pick us up because there were no roads or highways that went where we were. We were in the bush and, and, and there were not paved uh, landing strips is these these uh, dirt road kind of caliche uh, landing strips and and before uh, the, the the little uh, single engine single propeller plane could come and pick us up we would have to go and chase the wild dogs off of the off of the runway and chase the goats off of the runway and 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 and, and move big rocks out of the runway and fill holes in the runway and prepare a way prepare a path, make straight, make smooth a path for that plane to land. And John says that's his, that's his job as a prophet. His job is to make way and to clear obstacles from, G, from Jesus, to clear out any obstacle that hinders someone from coming to Jesus. Our need in 2018 is the same as it's always been. Return to God and cry out to Him for true spiritual awakening. So again, John's ministry is a message of repentance and his baptism is a baptism of repentance. His message is fundamentally repent. Um, repentance kind of gets a bad rap. We, we, we take that word and we've kind of made it a scary word or an ugly word or a word that we don't like. But repentance, the word repent, that's a deeply hopeful word. If God is saying repent, that means God hasn't given up on me. If God is saying repent, that means God is saying there's still time. Come back home. You know, Tom Bodette with the Motel 6, what does he say? I'll leave the light on for you. Well, the day we hear on the radio Tom Bodette say, I'm turning the light off, guys. What he's saying is you're not welcome anymore. As long as God is saying repent, that is good news. He's saying, join the party. Return to God. Come to, to God. Come to me. Repentance can be defined as turning, changing directions. If I'm trying to go to Abilene, whichever way it is from here, I'm turning around. If I'm trying to go to Abilene uh, and I end up in Lubbock, I went the wrong way. I got to turn. I got to change directions and go the right way. Repentance is accompanied by heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's accompanied by a renouncing of my sin and a commitment to walk in obedience to Jesus. Bill Hull uh, is a disciple maker and an author that I respect a lot, and he writes, the gospel is the proclamation of God's good news. The first word of the gospel, which is repentance, is often overlooked. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. Repent, and what did Jesus come saying, pronouncing, proclaiming? Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. The first word of the good news is repent. 
repentance, sometimes we say, well, you know, I, I can't earn my salvation. I mean, and, and we can't. And repentance isn't about earning your salvation. It's not about earning God's love. Repentance is responding to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. God moves towards us in grace. And repentance is my response to His grace. Repentance is remembering who God is. Remember the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Jesus tells this story. And the son wandered away from his, from his family, from his father. And, and while he's far away in a faraway land and he's looking at the food the pigs are eating, he remembers something. He says, my father's servants are eating better. They have a better life than, than I do. And when I've wandered far from God, repentance it begins with remembering who God is. It begins with remembering that He does have the light on for me and that I can go home. And, and in that prodigal son story, while he was still a long ways off, remember his father sees him and his father gets up and runs and, and meets him. Repentance is responding to God's grace. It's remembering God's grace. Repentance is returning home. We, we make repentance out to be this heavy and terrible term, but it's good news because... God wants you and me to come home. It's, uh, repentance is an invitation to come back and join the party, to come to the Father's house. Repentance is the first word of the good news. <laughs> and it's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. And repentance is required. A lot of us, and this is part of why the church in America and so many places and expressions, so often the church in America is dead and on life support and falling so far short of, of, of the vision of the body of Christ the New Testament lays out, is we want to say, I would like just enough of Jesus' blood to make sure I know where I'm going for eternity, but I don't want to be transformed. I don't want my life to change. Repentance is required. I can't say, Jesus, yeah, I'd like a little bit of blood, and I'd like to get know I'm getting in the pearly gates, but don't try to mess with my life. No. Whatever my sin is, whatever my struggle is, I don't get to say, hey, Jesus, just put up with a little bit of racism. That's my pet sin. I'm not going to deal with that. Or, hey, Jesus, I'm just going to hold on to this arrogance. Or I'm going to hold on to this lust. I'm going to hold on to my greed. I don't get to say that. I don't get to do that. Repentance is required. And repentance is practical. I love how practical John the Baptist is. In, in, in verse, uh, in verse <coughs> 7, after he calls them the brood of vipers, he says in verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Interesting thing, what John is practicing here is what's known as proselyte baptism. And this is what somebody who was not Jewish would do if they wanted to become considered Jewish. So if a Gentile, non-Jew, wanted to start living as a Jew, they would practice proselyte baptism like John is practicing here. But what we've got going on here is you've got the sons of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, actual ethnic Jews, practicing proselyte baptism. They're actually laying their ethnic heritage aside, and they're humbling themselves to the point of saying, I'm going to do just like any, anybody that's not even a Jew would do. That's incredible humility that he's asking for. And he says, don't say we've got Abraham as our father. He says, God's able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And a lot of us, we might say, well, I got baptized once upon a time, or, or, or you know, I was a member of a church once, or I even taught Sunday school 30 years ago. 
And, 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 and the point is, John's saying, are you, is your life bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? He says, uh, every, he says even now, verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Is your life bearing good fruit? Verse 10, the crowds asked him, what should we do? Look at how practical he is. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So he says, here's what you do. Here's what repentance looks like. He says, if you've got two jackets, give one of them away. You can't get more practical than that, can you? He says, if you've got two chicken legs, you eat one of them, and you give one to somebody that's hungry. And then, and then tax collectors say, what about us? They came to be baptized. Teacher, what do we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what about us? What shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. He says, don't use your position uh, to extort, but be just, be fair, be upright. Wherever, whatever these situations were, uh, John the Baptist doesn't say to anybody, well, your situation's different. You don't have to repent. Uh, he gives very practical uh, examples of what repentance looks like. Um, repentant, repentance for me doesn't look like well, I'm going to feel really bad about this thing, but I'm just going to keep doing it. A lot of times, that's kind of what we present repentance as. Well, I'm just going to keep doing my thing, but I'm going to feel bad about it. That's not repentance. John says repentance is, if you've got two jackets, give one of them away. If you've been mistreating people, stop doing it. And as we think about 2018, the year we're moving into, I just ask you to ask, what's one thing you need to stop doing? And what's one thing you need to start doing? What is something that you've been doing that you know you don't need to be doing? What's that thing you need to stop? What's that thing that you have not been doing that you know you need to be doing? What do you need to start? And if we, th if we ask that kind of practical question, God, what do you want me to stop? And what do you want me to start? We're on the path to kind of looking at what is repentance. It's very practical for John the Baptist. Our need in 2018 is the same as it's always been. Return to God and cry out for spiritual awakening. And then, the, and then verse uh, 15. The people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Now, John the Baptist, this is an amazing figure, okay? Uh, Jesus called him the greatest, the greatest man that ever lived. John the Baptist is such an amazing, phenomenal figure that when Herod's dancing girl, uh, Herod told her, you can ask for anything you want up to half of the kingdom. She could have asked for half of the kingdom. And what she asked for was John the Baptist's head on a platter. He was worth more than half the kingdom. This is an impressive individual. This is an impressive man. And yet Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. But the thing about John the Baptist, he, he's, he's fulfilling an incredible role. And what he says about the Messiah is, he says, I'm not the Messiah. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says, there's, there's somebody coming so much more amazing than me that I'm not able to even do the job of a slave and stoop down and untie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He's so much greater than me. And Jesus is so great this puts into, you know, into context how great Jesus is. 
that he stoops down and washes his disciples' nasty feet. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing King that we have. And John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He says, and John says, you know, he, he, he differentiates his baptism from the baptism of Jesus. For us, you know, John the Baptist's baptism, his water baptism, was looking forward to the work of Jesus. But when you or I get water baptized, we're looking back to the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. So the, the, the water baptism is superior for that reason. But John points to something else. He says, I baptize you. And because we're good Baptists, we believe that John was immersing, right? He was totally immersing people in the water. Um, and, and he says, I'm immersing you. I'm baptizing you in water. But the Messiah is going to immerse you baptize you, overcome you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, sometimes we, some people say the Holy Spirit and fire, these are kind of parallel with each other. Talking about the same experience in Acts chapter 2, when you've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's also the, the fire appearing on, on the apostles' heads. Some people say these are different things, and baptism of the Spirit is good, baptism by fire is bad. Um, I, would, I would look at these as parallel experiences, and the baptism by fire can be deep, severe judgment, or it can be a deeply purifying, comforting act of, and work of grace in our lives. It really is how do we respond to that baptism of fire. Is it going to be God's judgment, or is it going to be a deep, cleansing work of purifying grace? in your life and mine. But let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I haven't offended enough people this morning yet. Um, let's talk about the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is one, this is a topic that, that is kind of controversial. What does the New Testament mean when it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And, and some people say that, that baptism in the Holy Spirit is something that happens at the moment of conversion. When you uh, place your trust in Jesus. Now, definitely the Spirit of God comes to reside in you when, when, when you place your trust in Jesus. There's no doubt about that. But, but some are going to say that, that this experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, that this all happens at the moment of conversion, and there's not going to be any other further um, kind of major works of the Spirit in your life after that. It all happens at conversion. Some people are going to say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit only happened in the book of Acts. It was a specific thing for that period of time, and it has really no relevance to us whatsoever. Um, and then our Pentecostal friends are really, really going to emphasize the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they're going to tie it specifically with um, specific outward manifestations such as uh, speaking in tongues and other things, okay? And so, and so there's, some, there's some variation in how do we understand what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? But remember, regardless, what we know is, is that John is saying, just like I hold you in the Jordan River and plunge you under the waters and pick you back up, the Messiah is going to do that. He's going to baptize you, immerse you, but he's going to immerse you in God's Spirit. And he's going to immerse you in fire. And so this is something that Jesus does, and this is something amazing. Okay, um, and, uh, and, and one of our struggles with the Holy Spirit is we tend to think about the Spirit of God like He's an element on the periodic table, 
And we say, well, I've got all the spirit I need. He, I, I got all the spirit I needed when I got saved. I got all the spirit I'm ever going to get. And as I read the New Testament and the Spirit of God is called a person, a person of the Trinity, as he's called a he, not an it, um, I don't think the Spirit of God is a periodic element, okay? The Spirit of God is a person of the Trinity. The Spirit of God is, is a member of the Godhead. And so 15 plus, 15 and a half years ago, my wife and I got married. Something amazing happened in that moment. Some, there was a one-time event that happened in that moment when Son and I got married. But... I did not give her all of me 15 and a half years ago. And she did not give me all of her. I have more of my wife now than I had 15 years ago. She has more of me now than she had 15 years ago because we're in a relationship with each other and we've given each other more of one another over time. And if, if, if I'm going to be in a relationship with the Spirit of God, it's a relationship. And I believe he wants more of you, and you need it. Man, I hope you want more of him, okay? Um, so this is a relationship where intimacy can grow and develop over time between you and the Spirit of God. But as we kind of trace some other things that are said about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in Luke 24, verse 49, uh, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's telling this to his disciples after he's died on the cross, after he's risen from the dead. He says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In Acts 1.8, he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, these disciples pray and wait, and the Spirit of God falls on them in an amazing, powerful way. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the disciples are already believers in Jesus. They already have a relationship with Jesus. Um, and then this baptism of the Spirit is a subsequent event that happens after they've already been walking with Jesus for a long time, okay? And they're clothed with power. They're uh, given power to be God's witnesses. Um, I want to quote John Piper. John Piper, a, a word-centered, gospel-centered author. Nobody's going to accuse John Piper of being, you know, uh, somebody who's kind of off the rails or anything. This is a solid guy. He says, I think the essence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is when a person who is already a believer receives extraordinary spiritual power for exalting ministry. A person who's already a believer receives extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. My friends, I hope that you desire extraordinary spiritual power for Christ-exalting ministry. What the Holy Spirit does in your life, what He desires to do in your life and mine, through the growing relationship that He has with us, and through events where there's just an incredible outpouring, He desires to clothe you and equip you and me with extraordinary spiritual power so that we can make a big deal out of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to equip you to make a big deal out of Jesus. And I pray that's what we all want. Ask yourself, have I been clothed with power from the Spirit of God? Now, you either have or you haven't. And you either know the answer to that or you, or you don't. 
We're not talking about tongues. We're not talking about any kind of outward manifestation. We're talking about, have you been clothed and equipped for Christ's exalting ministry by the Spirit of God? Um, Is my life and every aspect of my life immersed in the Spirit of God? Well, if not, how can I change that? Repent. Return to God. And say, God, there's, man, there's this area of my life that I've kind of got stuck up out of the Jordan River and I haven't, I haven't immersed in you, immersed this area of my life, overwhelm this area of my life with the Spirit of God. I want my whole life, my whole being to be equipped with Christ's exalting ministry power. John immersed in water. Jesus immerses in God's Spirit. Maybe don't get caught up in treating the Spirit of God like a thing or an it, but treat Him like a person who desires deep and intimate and growing and thriving relationship with you. Our need in 2018 is the same as our need has always been. The band's coming up. Our need is to return to God. And our need is to be awakened by the Spirit of God. That's your need today. That's my need today. And spoiler alert, that's going to be my need tomorrow. It's going to be my need in 2019 and 2020. And as long as God leaves me and you on this planet, I am prone to wander. You are prone to wander. And what we continually need is to come back to the Father's house. And be refreshed and restored and renewed in Him as we repent and return. What we need is an awakening of His Spirit. What we need is a deeper relationship with the Spirit of God. What we need is an awakening. And some of us are sitting here today and and we don't want that. There's a lot of times in my life I don't want that. But what if we said to God, God, I don't want you right now but I want to want you. What if we started there? I want to want you. You know, we can't sit here and try hard enough to generate a spiritual awakening, individually or corporately. But the Spirit of God can generate a spiritual awakening in you. What does Sweetwater need? Sweetwater needs what Sweetwater has always needed. Return to God. And a spiritual awakening. What does Matt McGowan need? What do you need? The same thing. God, I want to come home. God, I need you to awaken me and pour your spirit out on me. And God, I don't want it maybe right now, but I want to want it. Can you meet me there? 